0: Hey everybody, welcome to the 12th episode of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan, coming to you from the passenger seat of my 2006 Chevy Cobalt. I like to experiment with where I record these intros and outros for the show. Previous listeners probably know that I spent a lot of time recording these in my girlfriend's closet. Well, since then I've tried other places, parks, patio, living room. Today I decided, hey, let me try out my car and see how this sounds. So here we are in my car. Welcome to my car. On today's show, Carl Domange. He is the person I most credit with getting me into the outdoors. He used to own a business called Extreme Things, which focused on getting people outside and also had a side element, which was an adventure club. Every month, Carl would put together different events, whether it be bungee jumping hiking backpacking canoeing sea kayaking anything he would get people in the club together and we'd go out and do these events that he'd organize i joined that club almost a decade ago and it is the thing that opened the gates for me to pursue outdoor activities before that i didn't know where to start i didn't know people who did these things so in a way you can thank carl for this podcast before it was a podcast, Go Get Outside was a video web series and it featured four different people in four different activities. Those are available. You can watch them on the GoGetOutside.com website. If you've already watched those episodes and you saw the caving video, you've already been introduced to Carl Domange. He is the one featured in that video. Besides being a caver, he's sort of an all-around adventurer, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur and a member of Search and Rescue. He and I got together in a park in UC San Diego, surrounded by a bunch of creaky trees, and recorded this interview. No, we are not inside a haunted house. All those creaky door sounds you hear, those are the trees above us just buffeting in the wind. Without further ado, let's get to the show.
1: Carl Domage. I am 45 years old, entrepreneur, former investment banker, and somewhat Still, search and rescue volunteer.
0: You were the guy who I kind of credit with getting me outside because you used to run this adventure club. That Dude, I,
1: I, I created you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you might want to be careful when you say that because when you say that, you also bear responsibility. Then
1: I take the credit for all the good stuff. You know, none of the stupid stuff you do.
0: So, so point zero one percent of things. Do you just consider yourself a general outdoor person, or are there very specific sports that you like to be active in?
1: I consider myself to. Be be a jack of all trades and master of none. Um, wow! Did you think of that all by yourself? Yeah, yeah. You can quote me on that. You know, sweet. You, you can coin that phrase if you want. I enjoy a lot of different types of outdoor adventure activities. I, I love hiking, love rock climbing, love canyoneering, uh, caving. You know, somewhat uh, orienteering. You know, those would be like the the primary ones that I like to that I like to do and focus on. But really, if it's if it's outdoors, then chances are I probably have tried it and if not then I want to try it or I'm or I'm I'm going to try it. The only one you don't like is scuba diving. Correct. Yeah, I don't I don't know. That's crazy. That's that's crazy talk.
0: So you grew up in Chicago, right?
1: Yes, that's in, that is correct.
0: In the flatlands of Chicago. So how did you go from being some suburban kid in Chicago to an outdoors person? How did you get introduced? I wasn't a
1: suburban kid in Chicago. Oh, okay, I, then what were you? <laughs> I grew up on the south side of Chicago you know, high park, south side. One of the things that the TV channels uh, tend to do in the middle of winter in Chicago is is show how much fun people are having in California. So, you know, we can be in the middle of, you know, snowstorm, and on television over the weekend, you might have beach volleyball, you know, and it's being broadcast from, from California or a surfing contest or something like that. You know, when I looked at that, I was like, man, you know, Californians, West Coast folks, you know, really have all the fun. Why, why can't that be me living like they do? So it was, it was more of a, a lifestyle thing. I consider myself to be an urban person. I mean, I, I, I love cities, love metropolitan areas, but when it comes to time for myself, uh, hobbies, it's got to be outdoors. So what
0: did you first get involved in? Did you start in Chicago or did you wait till you moved to get involved in something?
1: Oh man, like in Chicago, like I was always climbing stuff, fences, poles, um, walls. I mean, I think me and my friends, we did what I guess now is called buildering before that phrase was coined. I'm sure a lot of other people have too, but that's what we did. We, we climbed fences, we climbed buildings, the sides of buildings, telephone poles or you know, street light poles, just whatever we could. Uh, we have games of chase on rooftops of, of different buildings, and that's what we did, and so uh, I was always, I guess, somewhat athletic, but not so much into team sports, like basketball or football or anything like that. And I guess it was just when I first moved out to California, when of my you know, first uh, hiking trip, uh, that's when I really started to, to think, you know, this is something that I really want to do. So how'd
0: you end up in California?
1: This is actually my second time around in California. The first time i just graduated from grad school. Uh, I have a, a master's in corporate tax from the University of Chicago. And I started working with Wells Fargo and their leverage finance group. I was, you know, hired for their home office, uh, which was at the time in San Francisco. So right after grad school, I, I moved to San Francisco and... Spent about a year, maybe a year and a half in San Francisco before I got transferred to the L.A. office. Doing the same thing, and then after another two years or so of doing that, I got another position. This one was in was in London, an investment banking gig. I, I was an investment banker for about three years. Two of those years was in London. The final year was, was in New York. As an aside, I, I moved to New York one week before 9-11. Yeah, I
0: remember you telling me that you were trying to go to work the day that that happened. And then you were trying to figure out, well, do I go to work? Do I go home? What do I do? Yeah,
1: I mean, I I was still in corporate housing. I had only been back in the States for a week. When the um, uh, World Trade Center's uh, towers were struck, uh, I was on my way to work. I had seen and heard these New York crazies standing on a street corner, you know, yelling out different things. And at that point, I wasn't phased by it. But there was a guy that came into the the subway from the street level, and he was like, man, you're not going to believe this, but a a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I was like, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're right, I don't yeah. believe that. You know, I may even dug into my pocket to give him some change. You know, as soon as I, you know, went up the stairs and, and got to street level, I saw everyone else looking up, and that's when I looked up, and that's when I saw the first um, the first building, the first tower uh, on fire. Welcome back to the United States. I've never been super patriotic or anything like that. When you, when you live overseas, you know, especially in a place like London. I mean, people love to kind of tease you for being a yank, you know. And at first, it's kind of funny, and, you know, you laugh along with them or whatever. But then, you know, the ribbing seems to get, you know, more and more intense, you know, as you're there. And it's like, wait a minute, hold on, homie, you, you're talking about my country. You know, you start feeling patriotic about, you know, where you live. And, and you know, that for me was part of the, the reason why I came back, is that I got tired of being the foreigner. I wanted to, to come home, essentially. Uh, And then when I got home, uh, you know, this happened and it's like, man, you know, strap a missile on my back. You know, let's 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 go get these guys. But anyway, I digress. (laughs) 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 I was doing investment banking for about a year, about a year and a half. And then I accepted a package to leave. And the time that I was there, there were six rounds of layoffs. I survived all six. And then the seventh one, I kind of, you know, raised my hand and said, look, I'm, I'm ready to go. And so I accepted a the package. Then like the next morning I, I woke up with absolutely nothing to do. And it was great. The feeling was like unbelievable. I, I felt like I could do anything that I wanted. I had, you know, money in the bank, no, no wife, no dependents or anything like that. And often talked to my friends about, you know, starting business and, and, and that sort of thing. And This was now my opportunity. It was like, you know, what am I going to do now? All I knew is that I couldn't do the office thing anymore. You know, I'd worked 80 to 100-hour weeks as an investment banker. And for me, it it just, I I couldn't do that again. I mean, I I just couldn't go back to an office gig. I started to try to figure out, okay, you know, what what can I do? What kind of skills do I have? And I initially thought about doing something in travel, but seeing as how this was, you know, shortly after 9-11, um, no one wanted to touch you if you were trying to do a, a travel website or, or agency or anything like that. Um, so, but I took that business model, if you will, and tried to figure out, okay, you know, how can I develop a business around my outdoor interests? And at that point, mind you, my outdoor interests were, were very limited. I mean, I hadn't done a whole lot. I mean, I'd, I'd really maybe done a couple of hikes I did. I tried surfing, which which didn't take.
0: It sounds like you're just not good
1: in water, Carl. Uh, no, no. I, I, well, I, I like I like water. I don't like open water.
0: I remember going whitewater rafting with you, and you got thrown out of the raft in a Class Four rapid. And I'd never seen your yeah, eyes look so yeah, hard.
1: Yeah, of course you bring that up. That was that was a scary situation because I when I was underwater, I could see the surface of the water, and I was like, okay, and I kind of judge it to be about two feet above my head. And so I just start stroking, start swimming upward towards it. And, you know, 10 strokes later, I'm thinking, whoa, it's still two, two feet away. And that's a scary feeling when you're trying to, you know, break the surface of the water and, you know, it, it still remains, you know, out of reach. So that's, I kind of realized I was kind of being towed under a little bit or pulled under. Um, that's when I start to panic a little bit. And, I don't know, I guess I got some, some superhuman strength and finally broke through. Your eyes were huge when you surfaced, and you oh. looked
0: you looked like you were 100 yards away. You were so far behind us at that point.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. I, I mean, it was, it was terrifying.
0: But yet, we digress again. <laughs> you have decided you wanted to start an outdoor business. You were still in New York at the time.
1: That's correct, yeah. One of the first things I did, I kind of just sat down and tried to figure out, okay, what kind of outdoor skills you know do I have I couldn't really do anything I, I didn't know how to rock climb you know I could climb but I didn't know technically you know what are the uh, the equipment what, what's the what's a carabiner you know I didn't know what that was I didn't know um you know how to put on a harness because I had never done that so yeah I just didn't know where to go or what to do or, or or how to how to get started and I knew that I couldn't you know go to some kind of rock climbing outfitter and Tell them like, hey, I really want to do this. You know, please hire me, and then teach me, and then I'll teach clients. You know,
0: <laughs> this like, is about 2002 at this time, right? This, this, is, about 13 this is like years 2003,
1: ago. like 2003. Okay. Yeah, so like 12 years ago. But what I could do, uh, I realized, is that I could write and evaluate uh, like a business plan, and I you had to crunch numbers, and so I sat down and I wrote a kick-ass business plan, and I thought this was like, this was it. This was the next thing. This was like the next Amazon for outdoor adventure activities. Pulled my money, pulled money from some of my friends who also invested, got to a point where I was like, okay, I could start this business here in New York or I could you know, uh, move back to California and start it there. And I thought about it for a split second and I was like, it's gotta be California. I mean, there's, there's no other place where you could do these outdoor at- activities year round. Just the moderate temperature, climate, the diverse topography, I mean, there's there's everything that you wanted to do, that you would ever want to do outdoors, you can do in California. Uh, bought a plane ticket, <laughs> you know, and uh, moved out to California. So that's that was in uh, 2003. And
0: before that, you had lived in San Francisco. So what made you decide Los Angeles instead of San Francisco? Was it just because Southern California has more options?
1: I really enjoyed San Francisco, but I guess I realized that if you wanted to do a lot of the outdoor activities, you had to kind of go, you know, much further outside the city, whereas in L.A., it was right there. I mean, it's like uh, I lived in Pasadena in L.A., and within a 10-minute drive, you know, you're at hiking trail, you know, if, if that. So for me, it was just the proximity, you know, and the diverse, yeah, just the, the the number of different activities that you could possibly do in a given area. So that's that's why I chose L.A. over San San Francisco. So you
0: flew to L.A. You started a business. You became a millionaire. End of story,
1: right? No, no. In fact, that that story still hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I knew about business plans. I knew I knew how to structure a ver- reverse triangular, you know, merger. And
0: you sound like very valuable skills backpacking.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could I could do you know anything you know finance related. You know, I could you know do all kinds of stuff, but. I didn't know about a lot of stuff. I didn't know what the process was to actually starting a business and getting it off the ground. Like, what do you have to do to incorporate? How do you build a website? I didn't know how to do any of that kind of stuff. Since I did have money in the bank, um, you could buy all these things. And that's essentially what I did. Um, I paid someone to, to build my website. I gave them detailed instruction. I kind of created the, the architecture of the website itself. Um, hired a lawyer to get me set up uh, as an LLC in California. Once you start moving in a certain direction, to me, it seems that the universe almost conspires to help you with it. So if there was something that I didn't know how to do, I would often receive a phone call or some kind of advertisement in the mail about how to do that exact same thing. And I don't know how these people found me. Uh, how they do their, their targeted marketing, but it was incredible. It's like, for instance, if I needed uh, like a telephone service, you know, answering service, I, I got a phone call, you know, from uh, from a guy who was soliciting for, for exactly that purpose. And uh, so, yeah, it's just like a lot of different things that I didn't know how to do. They just kind of found me.
0: Yeah, I, I know what you mean, because I find that's kind of the same way. As soon as you just decide, I'm going to pursue this thing, and you take the first steps, I think part of it is an openness to recognizing the things that maybe you would have overlooked before, sure, and then part of it is people start to become aware that you're interested in that and then they start to contribute
1: in some way yeah, i I, I would agree. i I don't, I don't know how they get there, <laughs> how they got my information, but they found me, and then I just kind of went from there.
0: So you've been teasing this, but you still haven't said. What was the name of the business and what the business was?
1: So the name of the business was Extreme Things. Uh, we launched extremethings.com in May of 2004, and it essentially provided local outdoor short-term adventure packages. So if you wanted to go and uh, you know take rock climbing lessons or surfing lessons, if you wanted to learn how to do some canyoneering, if you wanted to go skydiving or bungee jumping, we offered those types of activities. The way it would work is that people would sign up for the activity, make a reservation through my website, um, and then I would send them to a service provider, a a real instructor, you know, who was certified and licensed uh, to provide the activity. Essentially, just like a a travel agency, I would take a commission and then they would get the the rest of the money. And so that's essentially how it worked. And it worked fairly well uh, for a little while. And then the recession hit. Then, you know, it seemed like things were kind of uh, getting better, and then uh, Groupon came along, and things got, got worse, uh, and then a bunch of other Groupon copycats came <laughs> along, and things got, you know, much worse.
0: But But in the meantime, while things were good... You had to vet these businesses also, right? So did that mean that you got to use the services for free to check them out?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that was one of the perks of of the business was being able to test out different services that my vendors would offer for free. Or I may even be approached by, say, like a drop zone, a skydiving drop zone. And, you know, they would want want me to advertise their services on my website. And, you know, they'd say, you know, why don't you come on out and, and, and talk to us and, and i do that, and when i get there, they'd say, okay, you, you're coming up with us, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then, you know, i get to get to skydive uh, with them for free. You know, all this is also just kind of kicking the tires, seeing, you know, how they provide their services, you know, how customer-friendly are they. When things really got to get going, and, and I had a, a kind of a nice number of services on my website, and if I found something new, then sometimes what I would do is just go and pay for the service anonymously, or not anonymously, I wouldn't tell them that, um, that I was with Extreme Things. I would just go and kind of see just how, how they provide their services. Again, seeing how customer service oriented they are. And if I like the service, I thought they did a good job, then I would you know, let them know who I am and, you know, and ask them if they wanted to advertise their services on my website. Uh, and So that's, that's happened uh, on a number of occasions as well. But once I once I actually launched the website, it was people finding me or wanting to be on my website and uh, then offering to, you know, show me their wares, if you will.
0: You wanted to do all these outdoor things, but you didn't really know how to do them. You didn't have the training. So you kind of started a business, which then allowed you to get the training and the experiences for yeah. these things you wanted to do already. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, and, and that's pretty much how things worked and you start off by you know going on a hike then you know you start going deeper and deeper further afield and as your confidence builds with being in an outdoor environment and further away from civilization you gain more and more skills more and more confidence and next thing you know you're you know a legitimate outdoorsman. The other thing that kind of led me and into my development was in running an adventure club people would always ask me different things like is that bear poop or are there mountain lions here or how cold is this water or what kind of flower is that or can you eat these berries or whatever wherever it was I'd basically tell them rubbish I mean
0: <laughs> so you would lie to people as well say. <laughs> I,
1: I would I would quote my favorite like outdoor TV personality you know and it may not have anything to do with the question that they asked But because what I said might sound a little bit intelligent, they would accept it. And then I would go back and research, okay, you know, what kinds of edible plants are there in this local area? What are, like, the main tributaries, you know, coming out of the uh, San Gabriel Mountains? I mean... All that kind of stuff, I kind of you know, did research based off of the questions that people would ask me.
0: And you mentioned the Adventure Club. Extreme Things was kind of two separate units in one, right? You had the primary Extreme Things yeah. business, and then you had the Adventure Club.
1: Correct. I mean, my, my bread and butter were the outdoor activity reservations, uh, again, people, you know, that wanted to book a skydiving event for them and uh, their buddies or bachelor party and group of guys, you know, they all want to try canyoneering. Or maybe it's just, you know, a girlfriend and a boyfriend that, you know, wants to try uh, hot air ballooning or something like that. They would, you know, come to my site, book an activity directly through me, and I'd get a cut. That was my bread and butter. That's how I, how I made most of my money. The fun part of the business was actually running the Adventure Club. And that's where we would do different outdoor adventure activities. It initially started off as it was really supposed to just be like just a, a one-off type of event. A couple of my clients, you know, asked me if, if I wanted to organize like a, a paintball activity or they said, I, they said, Carl, you should organize a paintball activity. And I actually thought about that. I was like, yeah, you know, why not? So I, you know, sent off an email to a number of my clients and, you know, asked them, you know, hey, does anyone want to go and, uh, you know, do paintball this weekend on this particular date? And I got a slew of uh, feedback and, and, you know, people that wanted to join. So we did that. And then, you know, after that event, we had so much fun. People were saying, man, Carl, what's the next activity? What's the next event? And then I started, you know, adding, you know, indoor rock climbing or a hike or, or something of that nature. And it just kind of grew and, grew from there. And, Next thing you know, it's like every weekend I'm, you know, organizing a certain activity for for people. Now, mind you, the the base of participants kind of fell off after a while. Um, I guess the excitement kind of wanes after a little bit. But still, you know, uh, we kind of averaged, I guess, throughout the history of the club, about 300 or so uh, members. I don't think we ever breached 400, but it was always fluctuating between 300 and like 399 members. Uh, which is which is fine. More of a intimate, you know, crowd, uh, and we would do different activities. If that was, you know, sometimes it would just be a hike. Other times it would be rock climbing. Other times it might be a ski trip, trapeze, flying trapeze. A lot of canyoneering activities yeah just just sea caves yeah sea caves all kinds of things yeah camping uh, whitewater rafting you know just a bunch of different types of activities and
0: that was the way we met is that i was looking for climbing lessons online came across your website joined the club showed up for some mine cave trip and then for many years (laughs) continued to show up and and that was kind of how i learned about all the different things because i knew that i was interested in doing these things i just didn't know where to start and once I joined the club, it kind of opened the door so that I had never heard of canyoneering. So that's how I found out about canyoneering in the first place. And then I just found out about activities I didn't know about, found out how to do activities I did want to know about. And then you meet people in the club who then you start hanging out with outside the club and doing other things.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, almost like a symbiotic relationship between me and the members of the club. They would uh, ask me about a certain activity, which they had never done before. Then I'd research that activity. And then I try to um, figure out how to way a way for the club uh, to get a a chance to to participate in that activity,
0: like trampoline dodgeball.
1: Exactly, like trampoline (laughs) dodgeball. Some of them were hits and some of them were misses. (laughs) That one, uh, that one was a hit. I think I think people really enjoyed doing the trampoline dodgeball. Um, We actually also tried regular dodgeball at one point in the club uh, when we first started, and that one was probably a miss. It's just not fun getting hit in the face with a with the ball but it's so
0: fun to hit other people yeah yeah, there's
1: there's definitely a thrill to that
0: (laughs) so you had the extreme things club you had the adventure club and then at some point you decided you wanted to become part of search and rescue
1: yeah I mean that was also just kind of like you know me wanting to to take you know my skill sets to the to the next level besides I was leading hikes I mean albeit they weren't like deep hikes or anything like that they were Mostly, you know, five to ten miles. uh, Although every
0: once in a while there'd be some backpacking trip uh, overnight Uh or Grand Canyon overnight or something like that. Correct.
1: I I just thought that, you know, one, I need to make sure that I had the skills to help any one of my clients uh, in whatever capacity that might be when we're, you know, out of doors. So initially I, I took like a wilderness first aid course and then that really piqued my interest into getting more uh, medical training. And again, things things tend to find you when you kind of put yourself out there for them. And uh, there was a a point shortly after taking the Wilderness First Aid course that I also took a a cave, orientation to cave rescue, uh, because I I was also a caver. And then shortly after that, I got an email from the Caltech Alpine Club, of which I was a member. Uh, Someone from the... Uh, Sierra Madre Search and Rescue Team sort of sent out an email to that club, to that organization, and they were looking for people that wanted to, to, to be members of the Sierra Madre Search and Rescue Team. That really piqued my interest, and I figured, well, you know, I really don't have a whole lot of time to do it. You know, maybe I'll just go for the first couple of meetings, you know, try it out, and, you know, see what happens. One thing led to another. You know, I was You know, seemed to always was able to kind of, you know, fit it into my schedule, at least to the minimum of of their participation standards. And
0: uh, (laughs) I remember you often saying, I have to get my numbers up. I've been missing too many rescues. I have to get my numbers up.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when you're when you're in training, you have to attend. A minimum of 75% of all of the rescue operations that, let's say, all of the search and rescue operations that take place. And it's a
0: volunteer organization, it's, so it's you're not being paid, but you're receiving lots and lots of training, right? That's,
1: that's correct. That's essentially how you're getting paid is, is through the training. But after you get the training, the expectation is that you're going to be with the team for you know, five years at least. And on average, if I take a look at the, the team members that are that are on the team now, the regular members that have gone through the training, I mean they've all been there for over five years on average. You know, much longer than than, than that minimum.
0: And what kind of training was it that you received?
1: Oh gosh. So there's uh, search and tracking, there's we, we're we're all EMTs. We are all trained in winter travel or snow travel. We're all trained in uh, high angle rescue. We receive hell attack training. Uh, which is really cool. Gosh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm so
0: a lot, a lot of different types a lot of training. Of training. I mean, Everything we, from medical to outdoor-related tracking. to kind of just a mix of all the skills that could come in useful in an outdoor situation.
1: That that's correct. Also, you know, other things that you may not think about, the organization, emergency management types of things that, uh, you know, are not like skill sets, but just things you have to know when you're dealing with other departments that are going to be uh, involved in a, in a rescue.
0: It was. I don't remember if you were still being trained in search and rescue, or if it was after you'd finished your training. We did this one little hike where a rock broke open this woman's hand, and you had to use some of those skills to bandage oh, yeah. her with duct oh, tape.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. That was that was pretty minor. But yeah. That. I mean. I'm sure she didn't think it was minor. But yeah. I mean. Uh, that was just really a a bandage job.
0: But a few years prior to that, you wouldn't have even known where to start.
1: Oh, true. I mean, a few years prior to that, I mean. I, I think maybe I was carrying a, a first aid kit around, but nothing to handle anything major, other than just a scraped knee or something like that. You know, after joining the the rescue team, you know, you kind of think about all the different things that could possibly go go wrong, and you kind of want to be prepared for it. So you start bringing you know, a little bit more equipment, and a little bit more equipment, and then that stuff gets too heavy. So you then start going ultra light, more you know, lighter and lighter on your in your own personal gear um, until you get to a, I guess a the, the right mix of gear and I guess maneuverability.
0: While you were working with search and rescue, what would you say would be the average type of thing you would deal with whenever you would get a call from
1: them? And this is going to sound very unexciting, but our average call would go something like this. Pagers would go off. Yes, we still carry pagers. you kind of like fumbling for a little bit trying to figure out, oh my God, you know, where's my car keys? Where's my you know, pants, where's you know, whatever. Uh, I would actually change into my rescue uniform while I was driving. Probably shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Um, and then we would all meet up at the station. Whoever got to the station first, they would uh, set things up. Once the the first, you know, two or three people would arrive at the station, they would immediately head off, head out to the scene. Uh, then everyone else would follow suit. So as soon as you get to the station, if there's any any other information that you need or any any Bits of equipment that we needed to grab from the station, uh, any other types of communication that, that might need to take place. You know, that's where, where we would do it. We would you know get there fast enough to get onto the trail. You know, boots on the ground, uh, racing towards uh, our injured uh, subject, and then we'd see Air Five swooping in, and you know they would save the day, poach our, our client, and then they'd wave at us. You know, we <laughs> we then reset for the next one. That's the way a lot of the operations went, but there are those. Uh, Air 5 can't always fly, uh, you know, if it's, if it's cloudy out, if it's nighttime, uh, if the person is in an area where there's a lot of tree coverage, in a, a, a canyon or something, uh, that's when you absolutely need boots on the ground. The helicopters cannot function without the people on the ground, so we would relay information to them. It's a cooperative relationship. And I use the term poaching, but I, I use that um, just in jest. You want best care, the fastest care, to be applied you know, to the patient. If that's them being flown out by a helicopter, then that's what we want.
0: Just like with nine one one or any kind of any kind of service like that, there are a number of false alarms that you would get. Mm-hmm. But you have to treat everything as if it's a true emergency, so that the real emergencies get treated. right?
1: Absolutely, and and but it's more than that. It's it's like sometimes when you're out for a long time and it, it seems like you know this should have been a very simple operation, but someone's lost and you can't find them. We have to assume that they're still out there, and that they need our help. Other times, you know, you have to kind of fight yourself. And, and start thinking, well, you know, they probably just walked out. They're probably at REI or something like that. And granted, a lot of times that is uh, what happens. Uh, that, that is the case. But uh, until we get confirmation that they are at REI or that they are out of the, the forest environment, then we're going to assume that they're still there that they need our help. So something that I
0: think maybe a lot of people don't realize about search and rescue, somebody somebody worded it to me this, this way recently. They said the R and, and S-A-R can mean two things. It can be search and rescue or it can be search and recovery. And so you were responsible for recovering dead bodies sometimes, weren't you?
1: You know, thankfully it doesn't happen uh, often, but it happens often enough. Uh, if you ever do join a search and rescue outfit, you're going to see some dead bodies cause they're they're all not happy endings, unfortunately. The particular time that resonates with me was just a couple of years ago. A hunter uh, went out in a a desert area. I I can't remember the the name of the the actual area, Um, but uh, he went out into this, you know, desert environment, and he was out hunting. I guess, you know, no one ever thought that you'd see something like this out there, but there's wells in these areas, so you might see like a a water tank or something like that and, and in this particular case the water tank was old and rusty and wasn't in use but uh, i guess the the hunter went uh, to this water tank kind of walked around it you know maybe wasn't looking where he was going uh, and fell through the well uh, that was in the ground he landed about uh, in at least 20 feet uh, water 12 15 feet uh, from the surface and the walls around him were very crumbly, so you can't get purchased on the walls. And unfortunately, he he drowned. You know, our team was called initially to find him because we, we we don't assume that someone has passed. We assume that they're out there and still needing our help. One of the other teams thought they, they saw something in a well, but they weren't quite sure. And uh, then it was confirmed that, you know, there is a body in the well. And uh, me being uh, one of the only cavers in the team, I was volunteered to get him out of the water.
0: And like you said, you were volunteered, not that you volunteered.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're talking about, like, type A personalities, you know, in a, in a rescue team. And so, you know, you don't want to be that guy that, that says, yeah, no, this is kind of scary. I don't want to do this. <laughs> you have a duty to do, and you want to, even though we're all volunteers, I mean, you understand... You know, that, you know, this is something that's going to bring comfort to the family. So, you know, that's what you think about is like, you know, the, the family wants to get their, their father, their husband. They want to get them home. They want to get them out, out of the water. They want to give them a proper burial. I was lowered into the water, was greeted by a floating body. And so I, you know, tied a rope around it and uh, they, they fished us both both out. I guess you know when I when I say it like that it sounds simple but uh, it wasn't very simple I mean yeah,
0: I remember when you told us this story initially it was it was very descriptive it was it had recently happened
1: you could smell the decay you know standing you know 20 feet from the well I mean it was it was really that bad the closer i got to it the stronger you know the stench you know gets and you know the the body is still somewhat active you know when when someone Dies and so there's a lot of g- gases that are building up. You know, one of the fears was that, in a way, that you know his body might not necessarily explode, but you know something could happen. Um, he had been in the water for so long that you know maybe the flesh would, you know, pull away from the bones or, you know. So there's all those kinds of you know concerns.
0: Not, not to mention just bacterial and yeah. everything. He's mixed in with the water and with the bacteria in the water. And- yeah, and
1: you don't know what's what's down there if there's anything sharp. Uh, there was also, he had a gun, um, um, he had multiple weapons. We know that one, that his rifle was, was sunk to the bottom of the well, but you, I mean, you just never know. I, I, basically stripped down to my undies and, and, uh, was lowered in, you know, just on the harness and, uh, you know, you don't want to step on anything. You don't want to, you know, cut yourself or anything like that.
0: Did you have any kind of protective outfit on or you were just mostly no, naked? It
1: was, it was, it was just my base layer that's that's it it was my my draws <laughs> i
0: think if i remember correctly you were saying you were trying not to get in the water because it was contaminated yeah and so yeah. you had to like sprawl across
1: yeah i mean it, it in a way it kind of reminds me of, of that scene and and i think it was maybe was the first mission impossible where it's Tom already drops
0: down yeah and he's minute. like
1: you know trying not to let his sweat you know hit the ground and so he's yeah he's kind of spread ego well that's pretty much how i was i was I was able to brace my feet against the walls and, you know, had the the harness kind of up to my chest and, and then I had my arms that were, you know, hugging this body, trying to get the rope to pass around them. I did get some water in my mouth, (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't pleasant at all, you know, but in those situations you kind of think you, at least what I kept telling myself was that, you know, slow is fast, you know, go very slow, very deliberate, uh and make no mistakes and that's the fastest i'm going to get out of there because i didn't want anything to happen i didn't want to tie you know just a, a weak knot around him or anything like that and then have him slip back and and fall into the water and then i had to go back in there and get him
0: once you had him secured with a rope or webbing or whatever it was you used were you each raised independently or did you get raised at the same time did you have a dead body hanging right beneath you as you were pulled out
1: yeah pretty much that's that's how it was um We had a lot of time to think about how we were going to do this, and basically was uh, we were going to lower enough rope that I could use to tie around him, as well as his backpack, because his backpack was still there. We also fished a number of other items out of the water. His shoes—he actually, uh, I guess, took off his shoes um, and let them float in the water um, so that he could, you know, tread water much easier. uh, That way, you know, the end of the rope was tied to him about uh, five feet. Above him was his backpack, and then another five feet above the backpack, I was harnessed into the into the rope. I think
0: when you told me this story initially, it was a week or two after it happened, and you would say, you said you could still periodically smell
1: Oh, yeah. That. Yeah, I mean, the, the stench, again, was, was so bad. It just kind of it gets in your clothes, it gets in your nostrils, and I don't care how, how much I blew my nose, you know, for the next week or two, I could still smell the decay. Uh, and, and, and that's how it is with, with dead bodies. I mean, the smell the lingers and, and stays for a long time.
0: So that is an example of one of the more trying and tragic outcomes of search and rescue. Did you have any moments of, like, great success or any, any Oh, of absolutely,
1: those? yeah. I mean, uh, and, you know, again, that was a very tragic occurrence, uh, as you said. And, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of those. I mean, there's there's some. But really, you know... You know, you have your, your, your false calls or your turnbacks. Um, you have your standard, you know, operations where, you know, you're just kind of going in, you're helping someone who you know, jumped off of a cliff and, and you know, maybe uh, sprained their ankle or, or, or feel some, kind, some type of back pain. All those are kind of like the typical operations. And then you get those that really kind of tug at you. You know, in one instance, there was a father and a daughter uh, went out hiking um, and uh, they, didn't, they didn't return home uh, in the time that they said that they would. And so our, our team was deployed along with another team. And we went out to look for them. And more and more information about people kind of comes in over the radio. Just, you know, anything that might help us. In this instance, you know, we, we found out that the father was uh, and the daughter had gone hiking many times before. Before they were very familiar with the area. This wasn't like, you know, the case of, you know, someone making a wrong turn. But uh, what happened is that part of the, uh, of the route that they were going to take was now closed. And so they had to uh, make a detour. And so we thought, okay, they're probably somewhere you know, stuck you know, in the detour area, which unfortunately takes them through some really rough and rugged uh, terrain. We looked for them for the whole day, and then nighttime came. We were still out in the field. It was probably about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And we're just, you know, uh, out there, um, still searching for them. And then uh, the guy that I was with, uh, you know, calls out the name, calls out a name. And then, and this is after hundreds of time calling. And then you get a faint, I'm here. And there's, I don't know, there's, like, first you're not quite sure. Right, you think maybe you heard something. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and then... You call out the name again, and then the the voice gets stronger, and and I, I tell you, there's nothing quite like that feeling of, of finding someone when they're lost, and you can hear the desperation, you know, in their voice, um, and and you know that okay, you just did a good thing.
0: And at the moment, you probably thought you're just saying the name for no reason. Yeah, it's you, just going to be another it. moment of no occurrence.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, you're you're kind of. You're you you're there. You're calling out the name periodically, um, and you know, you haven't you know gotten a response, and so you're kind of not expecting a response. And then when it happens, I mean, you get this chill that just goes, you know, up and down your back, and you know, makes your hair stand. And you know, um, in this case, you know, this was a father and his you know eight-year-old daughter, and um, I mean, it was just a, a great feeling um, when we when we got there. I mean, they had hunkered down for the night. Um, they were obviously very cold, and so we set them up with with some warm water and and blankets, and uh, you know made radio contact, and and uh, then we you know proceeded to 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 walk them walk them out. But you can tell it was a very scary moment, um, not just for the daughter, but for the father who was you know being strong for for her. And in those situations, I mean, sometimes people break down, you know, and so do the rescuers.
0: People listening. Have probably realized that we're talking about extreme things in the past tense. Yeah. Talking about your time with uh, search and rescue in the past tense, you did have to, you did shut down the business, and you don't act actively participate with search and rescue anymore, right?
1: That's correct. I'm um, still an associate member of the Sierra Madre Search and Rescue team, but I'm not, uh, I guess, a field operative. Uh, I I don't go out in the field, and uh, the reason for that is because. A few years ago, I was was feeling very tired after a search. You know, actually during the search, I was I was feeling extremely tired, and I went to uh, my doctor afterwards and, you know, told him you know there's something wrong, <laughs> you know, and I, I told him that I'm I'm feeling very fatigued and out of breath, and it's just it's just not like me, um, you know. I can and I could kind of tell by kind of you know how. Uh, fast or, or strong. My hiking is a relative, uh, you know, to my uh, search and rescue uh, teammates. And I was generally, I like to think, you know, one of the strongest uh, of the hikers. Um, but now um, I was, I, I mean, I, I was really dying. I mean, people were, were, were offering to carry my, my, my pack. And so I, I uh, my doctor set me up with a CT scan. And when it came back, he said that, you know, they detected some anomalies. And then, you know, after uh, more conversation, uh, anomalies turn to masses. And then after more conversation, masses turn to uh, tumors. And so uh, I have uh, what's called thymoma, which, which is a, a cancer of the thymus. But it affects the lining of the lungs. And so uh, I have uh, multiple... Uh, uh, tumors and and, 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 uh, and growth uh, on the lining of my lungs which actually impacts the um, uh, the capacity of my lungs. So uh, that plus uh, every now and again I'll get pleural effusion, which is your lungs filling up uh, with fluid, and so that also uh, impacts my my lung capacity. So for me, hiking uphill is is pretty difficult. And certainly, you know, strapping on uh, a rescue pack uh, with, you know, 35 pounds of gear uh, that's, and then, you know, going out and, and, you know, searching for someone uh, over a period of hours, um, you know, and, and hiking in a rapid way the way that my teammates would uh, is, is just not something I could do. It's not something I can keep up with.
0: Yeah, I remember shortly after you were diagnosed you were saying how you you still wanted to stay active and you didn't want to give up things but that as time passed you would have to and i remember you saying that you had to give up mountaineering which was something that you really liked and then you've also had to give up like long distance backpacking and certain types of hiking yeah
1: i mean slowly unfortunately slowly but surely some of my favorite pastime activities i've had to to give up kind of happened in a in a step fashion but then but then it was also all of a sudden it happened where okay well okay i I had to give up, you know, just running. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not, you know, the greatest runner in the world, but I can, I could run. Uh, But then it was like, okay, I had to give up running. So, okay, I'll give up running. Then it became, I had to give up uh, high altitude uh, mountain climbing. And so I was like, oh, damn, you know, I really like that. And so I gave that up. And then it became, you know, giving up more and more long distance hiking, uh, more backpacking type activities, more deep, you know, in the backcountry, you know, type activities, and so now um, I'm, I'm basically what I'm left with uh, are certain activities that I can do. Uh, I can still rock climb um, because I can, you know, rock climbing is like you know, taking a step up. Uh, it's more about technique than than strength, uh, but I can certainly uh, take a step up and rest, take another step up and rest. Uh, so I can still rock climb. I can still hike, albeit very slowly. um, You know, unless I can find a nice continuous downhill, Uh, eventually I guess I'll have to turn around and go uphill. Uh, So I I, I tend to not do uh, any more long distance uh, hiking, Uh, but I still try to get out as much as I possibly can. You know, and then you know, with with without hiking, a lot of the other outdoor activities you kind of also have to give up, Uh, like canyoneering. I can still do some canyoneering, but again, it, it's one of those things you have to be with a group of folks that are very patient. Um, you know, who are, who are going to be fine with carrying all the group gear. Uh, thank you, Jason. <laughs> um, and uh, and you know, they just have to be fine with with the pace, you know, that I'm going. But I'm a beast downhill, man. I can I can really do. I can really hike downhill. You can still do caving as well, right? I can still do, do, do some caving. Um, a lot of the vertical stuff might be a little bit difficult, particularly if it's a very deep uh, vertical cave. But anything that doesn't require um, you know, technical gear, absolutely, I can still do that. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things I have to... I'm constantly trying to evaluate myself and, and figure out, okay, what are my capabilities? What's difficult for me? What's, what's, what's something that I can do easily? Um, and what are those things that I can, you know, that I can tolerate just kind of have to listen to my body and try not to put myself in, in, in difficult positions where, uh, I'm at a a point where like, you know, I have to do this. Otherwise, you know, things are going to be very bad.
0: And you, and you said you're looking for other things that maybe you hadn't gotten into before that maybe now you should like, for instance, today we're in San Diego Because we came to try out some paragliding and you said you were thinking about
1: maybe getting into paragliding because that's something you could do. Man, that was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm basically constantly trying to figure out, okay, what are my limitations? You know, what can I do? How can I keep chasing after that, you know, uh, adrenaline rush? You know, that that thrill that I get for for being outdoors. And one of the things that um, I I thought about uh, was suggested to me, actually, uh, was paragliding. And, you know, that's something that Uh, I, you know, kind of always wanted to try. I actually did do it uh, many years ago, but it was kind of like a, just a one-off type thing. And it wasn't very long. It was just kind of to get a sense of things for uh, an instructor that wanted to uh, join my website. But, um, you know, now I, you know, I, I thought, you know, why not, you know, be more active in it? Why not pursue a certification? And so today was all about trying to figure out, okay, is this something that my body can tolerate? And the answer is absolutely, you know, so uh, that's something that I that I hope to pursue.
0: And now I'm going to put you on the spot. You also have been writing. Are you keeping up with that?
1: I, I am. Um, I, I like to consider myself an adventure writer, though the things that tend to happen to me, I, I guess, tend to involve or revolve around my my illness. And so I've been doing a lot of writing about my cancer and trying to do different things to to combat the effects of the cancer itself or the effects of the chemotherapy, the treatment. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of different types of things. Gotten in, got into yoga, um, uh, tried uh, tai chi, uh, tried uh, a number of other things. And so I'm just constantly always searching for different things that I can do. And... Uh, Sorry, what was your original question? About your writing. So oh, yeah. So are you still so, anyway, so writing, and are you going to share that writing right, with right. people? So, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly will. You know, it's just that it's, it's very difficult for me. I, I think I am a, a, a pretty good writer. Just because something interesting happens to you, that doesn't mean that you can write it in an interesting way. And likewise, something very mundane can happen to you. But if you're a good writer, then you can, you know, entertain uh, your reader, you know, just, just by your craft. And that's something that I'm striving to do: is, is being able to entertain my readers with my craft, and and so I'm I'm trying to build you know that skill set. Uh, it's it's a process. Uh, it's it's very difficult. It takes a long time. But there's sometimes when I write something, um, you know, and I'm I'm like, man, this is it. This 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 is perfect, and I'm I'm happy with it, and I set it aside, and then that becomes you know part of the the larger puzzle, the larger thing that I'm that I'm writing. Um, and so, uh, but it's it's still going to take a little while. But, uh, but I I think I hope uh, I'll be able to get something out um, published uh, very soon. And is that the goal
0: to publish a book, or would you, or do you have any plans to release anything, say on a blog or online or anything like that?
1: Well, I, I think in order to to publish a book, I think at least you know to get it published by you know a a publishing agency and and company. Uh, as opposed to doing it yourself online, before they accept you or accept your your book, a lot of times I, I think um, they want to see that you they want to they want to see that you can can grab an audience that someone else appreciates your writing, and uh, the only way to do that is by having something maybe a, a shorter piece uh, published in in a in, a, in a, a magazine somewhere. So there might you might find some um some magazine articles published by me prior to uh my book my memoir but uh the main piece that i'm working on would be my memoir and that's that's what i that's what i really hope uh will speak to the person that i am and my activities and my adventures
0: is there anywhere online people could go to find out what the hell Carl Domanje is doing or are you hiding somewhere digitally so no one can find you
1: i am hiding i'm i'm hiding you know i'm i'm very easy to find with with my last name i mean it's very easy easily i'm very easily googled um, but you won't find my writing uh, in those pieces and uh, to be honest i try uh, to not have uh, that much about me (laughs) online as possible because that's a double-edged sword (laughs) all right
0: so if people want to know more about carl They're just going to have to wait and see when you publish a book. That is
1: correct. That is correct.
0: All right. Well, then I guess I'll let you go back into your digital cave. Thank you. Hide from the public.
1: I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, Jason. All right. Well, thanks for coming out and doing this.
0: Go to the website, gogetoutside.com. You'll get some photos of Carl in action and a link to that Go Get Outside caving video. Unfortunately, there won't be any other links to anything that Carl keeps up to because he is an internet recluse. That pretty much covers today's show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always reach us with an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com. If you're one of those folks that really likes to talk on the phone or talk to voicemail robots, you can call us at 818 818- 818 9250106. That's our voicemail number. You want to do me a favor? You want to do this show a favor? Stop by iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to this show. Go ahead, make sure you are subscribed to the show so you get every week's new episode. While you're doing that, go ahead and give us a rating and a review. It helps out a lot and make sure other people find this show and make sure we pop up in the results. It's one of those things that makes sure this show keeps going. So if you subscribe, rate, and review this show, you'll have done me a big favor, and you will exist in the upper echelon of awesome podcast listeners. Be an awesome podcast listener. Next week, Pamela Zulalian, outdoor generalist, pro-street loser. That's right. She has been in the X Games. Flying down mountain streets on a luge. Come back next week. Pamela Zulelian. See you then.